Warning, this episode has explicit language in it, and if you are sensitive to that, I suggest listening to another episode. If not, go ahead and listen to the rest of this episode. I encourage you to. It's a really good interview with my good friend, Nick Nelson. Please enjoy it. Two casts where we talk about movies, video games, music, and more. I am joined with uh, the first time guest uh, ever, uh, Nick Nelson, my boss, friend, and resident film expert. <laughs> I don't know about expert. <laughs> <laughs> you have a master's degree in film studies, dude. Of course, you're an expert. <laughs> I'm not a doctor yet, though. No, no, but th- that's more than that's more <laughs> studying than I've done, and I run a podcast that talks about this stuff. <laughs> hey, Boo, will you chill? No, no. Okay, we have a dog in the room, which is not not what we're used to, but yeah, she'll be fine. Yeah. she'll be mellow. Yeah, I'm sure she will. Yeah. Anyways, so uh, Nick, I'm gonna just ask you some basic things before we get into the the meat of the discussion, and that is, who are you currently? Um, just like some general shit. facts that don't give away too much of your identity for uh, identity theft, but enough for people to get to know you. <laughs> yeah, currently uh, I manage a movie theater, second in charge. Um, I've been in the theater industry since I was 18, so 14 years now. Um, pretty much eat, breathe, and live cinema, all the way from floor staff to projectionist, but... Yeah, at the moment right now, I'm helping manage the best theater of Sonoma County two years in a row. (laughs) Um, Currently trying to get a job teaching or part-time teaching. You know, Lucas just said I finished my master's, and that was in July. So I'm in that weird year after master's, think I failed my life stage right now. You didn't fail your life. It's just, it's just coming. <laughs> the second half is coming. Yeah, I just got to You've learn. had a pretty eventful first half. I got to <laughs> learn to be patient. <laughs> figure out what's going on. But yeah. at the moment, just that, figuring out where I fit in film after my master's and moving up in my company is the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. What are some uh, Nick-only things? So things that, like, define you. And I feel like there's a lot. <laughs> let's un- let's only, unpack it. Nick-only things that define me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's hard to really think of yourself as unique in this climate anymore with how many people are on the earth. Um, eh. Only me. I feel like you have a lot of unique things, which we'll probably find out as time goes on. Yeah, as time goes on, I can't really think of anything off the top of the head. I mean, even near-death experiences aren't really unique anymore. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, oh man, that's a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, besides uh, uh, living, breathing, and uh, dying in movies... Um, <laughs> get busy living or get busy watching. (laughs) Um, uh, what are some of your hobbies? Hobbies? Mm -hmm. Jesus. Um, just general things. They're all over the place, honestly. I mean, I'm from, you know, film, which is going to be the main 
plug of this, but I mean, I do video games too, mm-hmm. even though most people wouldn't think that I'm into that. Um, I recently got into print collecting last year, so yeah. alternative movie poster collecting, and that's kind of sprung and branched out into the art community, so fine art collecting, original mm-hmm. drawings yeah. has been what I've been doing now, so that's pretty fun. Preservation, framing, trading, <laughs> selling. Yeah. Uh, helps pay bills, too, flipping some of those. So. Yeah, you you have quite the collection. I've seen some of your, your posters. I think your your coolest one is your your, cur- your newest one is, is your There Will Be Blood poster, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, I, that's pretty crazy. I recently got, it's a, kind of a knockoff H24 did of an infographic about diamonds mm. for Uncut Gems. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, so it's a... <laughs> It's matte black with uh, kind of chrome print on it, but it's uh, an infographic on what to look for in diamond cuts from Uncut Gems. Are you serious? <laughs> How Did you, like, buy that on the H24 website? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They've been doing a ton of merchandise for that movie. They, uh, I, I missed out on their Furby chain drop. Dude, they had I w- a replica Furby chain, so I <laughs> I got to see the pictures and everything of it. It's it's half the size of your palm, and it was $250. Oh, my gosh. Those sold out fast. Yeah. Um, I was just curious. I wanted to price check those because I was so curious. People are flipping them on eBay for $1,000. I already. bet, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dang. For a goddamn Furby chain. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, uh, that kind of covers the, the basic stuff. So um, let's get into, uh, I'll, you know what, I'll just ask you first, um, and we'll, we'll, let me just give some basis on like how I got to know you and uh, how our friendship has grown over the last two years, almost? Seems, seems about right. Yeah. yeah. So I started working for Nick as a floor staff back in 2018, the summer of 2018, right? I think. Mm-hmm. Um, right around like... Incredibles 2 coming out. Was it? Yeah. yeah. And that, that was a few months after you had transferred to that theater again. Are you, oh, do you go outside, Bill? <laughs> She's wet. <laughs> it's, it's probably raining out there or something. Um, yeah, because did you work there when Infinity War came out? No, that was no. afterwards. Or that was before I got there. Okay, yeah. so you got there probably right after it with mm-hmm. the March release, I think yeah. it was. Um, but we've, we've known each other since that long and we didn't really become friends and probably until like two months into me working for you, I would say it wasn't until like, I really like was committed once I became like team leader and stuff. That's when I really got to know you and stuff. And I'd like stop in the office a little too long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we just, we just goof off on movies and stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to find people when I started working in the cinema. Yeah. Uh, you know, that long ago is a projectionist. Um, you could sit in the break room and have conversations with pretty much everybody about film. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody who worked in a cinema, it felt like here, loved film. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was pretty rare that people would be like, oh, I don't really care about it. But that's different. And now I've noticed that when I do find someone who is there that wants to talk to me about film and everything to do with it, yeah. it's it's refreshing to see that person with that perspective on film working in a cinema. Cause that is pretty rare now. Yeah. I think I thought, well, so I joined, I, I joined the, the airport 12 team because I was, I wanted to like learn a little bit more about fil- film business and stuff. And I wanted to like, 
And I was like, oh, it's a perfect job. I get to see free movies whenever I want and stuff. And it's like, it'll help just, you know, make sure I don't have debt for this next year or whatever. And I ended up working there for uh, a year and a half. And then I went to school, um, obviously. But uh, I then came back this last winter and we got to spend some time with each other. But we thought before I left, it would be cool to do a little podcast because you found out that I had a podcast. And you're like, when you having me on, Lucas? <laughs> Um, and yeah, the rest is history basically, but we, we, we get, we digress when it gets slow so much on just stupid stuff when it comes to film. Uh, like, I don't know, do you have any examples of what we talk about? I mean, it's hard to go into the rabbit hole of yeah. our conversations, but I don't know. Were you there for the green book win last year? Yes. When oh my the- gosh. <laughs> I think I talked shit about Green Book winning Best Picture for like six <laughs> months after that. That was so funny. And my paranoia just ran rampant. I was like, the Academy's rigged. I know it is. And all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, last year's Academy Awards was was made uh, life very entertaining to watch when you're around Nick. <laughs> for a little while. <laughs> but no, I'm trying to think of some of the even lamer movies we've yeah, we down the rabbit. We hole usually with. digress on terrible movies because <laughs> we just love tearing Those them apart. Are the most to talk about. Yeah, um, but we usually have a good conversation or two about like early directors' work and stuff. And you've given me a lot of good recommendations on like directors that I never heard of before. Like I don't think I would have watched Climax had I not known about who Gaspar Noé is without you explaining to me like, yeah, he's very controversial and he's gonna mess with you, but you know. How he does his film is unique and very different. Yeah, I let you off easy with a recommendation for Climax and not Irreversible. Yeah, I'm getting there. I'm I'm trying to build up to it. The first No A film I got shown was Irreversible, and that was one of the earlier films that was getting... When I was getting really into film... um, I mean, I got into film when I was younger with my grandpa, Mm -hmm. who was a big western person and that's I think where a lot of my you know anytime I see western influence in films I just love it like The Mandalorian this year was one of the most Mm. refreshing Star Wars franchises or sagas I've seen in ages Mm -hmm. um the western and samurai influences on it I just thought were what needed the Mandalorian to be who he was Mm because he was the Mandalorians never felt like a space person it was always like a six shooter from the old west yeah his spaceship was a stagecoach and horses and stuff and like yeah he that it was very anthology based it wasn't it didn't feel super serialized until the very end of the season I would say yeah yeah but those were my early influences but going back to irreversible when I started working at the theater when I was 18 mm-hmm. Scott was my general manager mm-hmm. um and Scott Tinko? Yeah. Okay. So he always had this awesome thing, and we used to joke about it. He had Scott Buster. Mm. And I would go over to his house, and he had just this massive movie collection. I remember just being so goddamn jealous of it. Mm-hmm. Just like four or five bookcases of movies, collections, anthologies. And uh, pretty much every time I went over there to party, I would take three or four movies home with me. Nice. And it just rotated like that. And he would recommend me stuff. Sometimes I would pick off the shelf, but 
he gave me Irreversible one day, and he's like, "Go home and watch this one night." And <laughs> oh man, that would have that must have been. He didn't give you any context or anything. Nothing. Oh man, nothing. He was like Monica Bellucci's in it, and I'm like, "Okay, I'll bite." <laughs> um, so I close Jeez. the theater one night and get home around like 1 a.m. and I'm just like sitting there looking at it, and I was like. Fuck it, I'm not tired, I'll pop this on, and I pop it on, and I felt like my eyes were bleeding after that movie was over. I don't think I blinked once. (laughs) Alright, well, now I know what the standard is when I watch that, (laughs) because I'll probably be watching it in the next few weeks or something. I'm I'm, I'm making some schedules of, like, what, what I should watch. Um, and stuff, but I guess that kind of answered my first question of our uh, our our basically the the gist of the conversation, which is your experience of film and cinema, and that was how did you first get into film in the first place? But I feel like you kind of kind of answered that more. That's or less. what I was trying yeah. to go for a little yeah. bit. But a lot of what got me into film and cinema is just learning from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you said I got my master's, but I never even really thought about film school until a few years ago. Mm. I mean. It had never even crossed my mind. I always learned from people around me, their conversations, and I ended up working for a good company that has a lot of people that know a lot about film. Yeah. And from that, I've got the diverse taste I have because I've had so many different people recommend me stuff. Mm. Gotcha. All right, well, um, let me ask you this. So what, now this next question kind of leads from that last is, uh, what motivated you or inspired you to study film more seriously than just watching it? Um, I think what motivated me to do the master's in film was I was finishing up my bachelor's at Sonoma State in psychology, and um, I was planning on what to do for my master's, and you know, if I was going to go a full doctorate route and everything, and I was just sitting there and just not really happy with what I was doing in school, not sure if I wanted to do it anymore, but I needed to finish the bachelor's, and mm-hmm. it was the same time around that time where working at airport had kind of just broken me down. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was my... I was losing passion in the industry, mm-hmm. and it was I was losing it fast. So I left airport and moved up to Raven, which is a four-screen, smaller theater, to work with Scott again. Mm-hmm. Um, a four-screen, obviously, you're going to get independence. You're going to get people that are more passionate about film coming to watch it. It's not just the drudgery of putting the numbers into MCU seats and yeah. Disney seats and stuff like that, which I will say I have no negative words really for MCU yeah I, but, it, but it, there is like a level of weird business that you have to do when it comes to Disney films yeah they're always looking at numbers yeah so I went there and one day I came to work and walked in and on this little chair we had at the or little bench we had in front of the Raven everybody put pamphlets and Sonoma State had a pamphlet for masters in film it was the first year mm. they ever did it and for some reason, everything just made sense. And I signed up for it, and I got into the program. I worked at the Raven for two years. And just all that love for film just flooded back into me. Mm. Um, I had good teachers in the program that pushed me, that were like, your writing is amazing. The way you're looking at films is completely different. My thesis I wrote on films that 
is hard to find any more than two page online periodical writings about. Yeah. Because they're so new. Yeah. And new theories. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about your master's thesis a little bit? I've read it. I thought it was really interesting. Um, but yeah, you want to, do you want to break that down for the audience listening? Yeah. So the title of it, I can't re- the working title was what's your favorite scary movie. And it was just a look. It's not a new thing. I mean, this has been written about all the way back from Caligari. Mm-hmm. I mean, Caligari and the theory of post war um, Germany yeah. and all the anxiety, cultural and social anxieties of that era. Mm-hmm. Um, they talked about it in the 60s with Psycho and Hitchcock, 70s with Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Communism and the mm-hmm. Cold War, Vietnam, um, 80s was all about consumerism and sexuality with the slasher genre that emerged mm-hmm. that just became wildly popular and the yeah. idea of franchises I mean Friday the 13th and Nightmare they're still yeah. they're, they're still, still pushing out yeah. movies Halloween yeah. they just released a new one that and I they're about, about to release another one this year I think yeah they're gonna do two more so the idea of what I was what I was doing wasn't completely new mm-hmm. it's been what's looked at horror films forever but what I looked at a little more coming from my cinema side was why are horror films becoming so popular? Mm-hmm. Their numbers are growing yeah. in box office. Um, it Chapter One was the first film to break the R-rated horror film gross record. Yeah. Um, and it beat The Exorcist, which I think came out in the 70s. Yeah. I mean, it's so old. It held yeah. the title forever. And yeah, with inflation, I think it's a little off, but... Yeah. Just that length of period it took for an R-rated horror film to change the numbers is crazy. Mm-hmm. And looking at demographics, horror film attendance is up. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the numbers lie. Attendance is up because we live in such a tumultuous time right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have turmoil and the country is just pitted against each other. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's created some really interesting uh, horror films, too. Yeah. It definitely does. Yeah. And we see horror film directors are all in all becoming younger. Yeah. I mean, look at some of the most successful recently Hereditary and yeah. Midsummer are yeah. done by a millennial. Yeah, the dude's super young. The generation yeah. who is a lazy fuck who doesn't do anything Yeah, built that. And... Hereditary, while everyone looks at a possession film, I mean, that to me has always been psychological horror. Yeah. The only horror in that film is what's happening to that family. Yeah. And then Midsummer is a perfect look at how relationships are. Yeah. Our generation and what we have to deal with relationships. And I mean, to show how bad relationship abuse can be. Mm hmm. I mean, those directors being younger are making films for younger people and all in all we're becoming the bigger population so mm-hmm. the numbers are going up for us mm-hmm. yeah I, I think that's some really good points and uh, his thesis t- covers on a lot of modern horror specifically examples uh-huh. um, which I thought was really interesting for someone who has grown up in the last 
10 years, really, I, being able to finally see Radar films in the 2010s. Um, I've seen a lot of these films, and it was really interesting to see his breakdown of, uh, of them and how you explained, like, the psychological effects of them and what they're covering. Some of them are covering racism. Some of them are covering um, a response to the old Final Girl stuff. And then some of them are uh, covering just different subjects like that. Um, and we see that a lot. And I think you, you brought some really interesting points. And um, do where did does, is your uh, thesis published somewhere that we can find it? Um, I'll have to find the link for okay. you. It's published on the the Sonoma County Schools website or mm. something. Um, I know you can search for it on Sonoma State's yeah. database and find it. Yeah, it's a really great piece of writing. Um, if you guys are at all interested in horror movies and modern horror uh, culture, he does a super big, great, uh, super great breakdown of that stuff. Um, but let me ask you this. So um, talk to me, what does your work in the film business consist of currently? Work in the film business consists of now. Yes. Um, at the moment, it is amazingly boring, honestly. <laughs> um, it's not boring, but, you know, with the holidays just ending yeah. and everything at the theater, we're kind of... We're slowing down. At a standstill at the moment. Yeah. Um, I never really talk about what could be, just because I've never wanted to jinx it, but mm -hmm. there's been discussion about me moving up a little more in the company and getting mm -hmm. a bigger aspect of the cinema industry corporation or something. Mm -hmm. um, there's always the the idea of writing and filmmaking and mm -hmm. whatnot. I mean, I worked on a film last summer mm -hmm. um, pretty much just brainstorming in the writer's room. Nothing amazing. Nothing mm -hmm. big. Uh, I was an extra in it, but that was it. Mm -hmm. So, at the moment, film-wise, I don't have anything going. Um, like I said, I am looking to teach. Yeah. I did apply to see if I could get in at the junior college, and then I've been looking at Sonoma State possibly, too, because I know they have a minors program in film and mm -hmm. maybe something there. Yeah. Um, also, but let, let me let me uh, rephrase the question a little bit. So, what what do you do at the movie theater? Like, what does the day to day look like? Where where do you kind of wh what do you work mainly in? How do you kind of operate uh, the Airport Stadium Twelve Theater? Okay. Yeah. Operations. Yeah. Is, I mean, most of the stuff is day to day of any job, cash handling, stuff like that, mm -hmm. um, HR stuff. Basically making sure the building's running good, but mm -hmm. I also do scheduling. I write the movie schedules. Mm -hmm. um, basically, it's over at the point I'm at with managerial is overseeing mm -hmm. everybody to just make sure it's all running efficiently. Yeah. Um, the reason I went to the theater is because it was being run very inefficiently two mm -hmm. years ago is when they asked me to go there and kind of change stuff around since they did the remodel and they had that attendance surge with new recliner chairs brings yeah um but in the two years i've been there we've won best theater yeah um and then once again that's obviously everybody working mm -hmm. i mean that can't just be one person it takes so much to run a business yeah but me is 
I oversee a lot of stuff. I work with corporate to mm-hmm. make sure everything's going good. Um, I'm a huge event person. Yeah. I love doing the events. Yeah. Um, private rentals for films and all that. I love doing those just because the people coming to see the films are just usually excited. Yeah. That's what I love about it. Yeah. You you also do a really good job of um, helping out with... Uh, when, when we had, for example, when we had uh, Avengers Endgame... We had cosplayers come out, and you got to interact with them a little bit. Oh yeah! Well, that was really fun, and you you had you've always had some really cool ideas in terms of like, oh, let's do some decorations for Halloween. Let's make people like freak out a little bit yeah, in chapter two and stuff. <laughs> I did do the it decorations with the little Georgie boats everywhere. Oh man, that. that's hilarious. Um, yeah, I mean, my whole thing is to make going to the movies fun. Mm-hmm. That's what it's always been about. Yeah. And, I think people have overall gotten a little too uptight. Disney trying to fill seats. Mm-hmm. And I just say Disney as an example. Everybody's guilty of it. Everybody yeah. grabs for cash. Mm-hmm. But to keep things interesting for mm-hmm. people, whether they're going to see the new Marvel movie or whether they're going to see an independent horror film, mm-hmm. I think everyone should be able to enjoy their time there. Yeah. And to me, your taste will never matter as long as you just love what you're watching. Yeah. Or hate it, but just enjoy that you're watching it. Yeah. Yeah. And you do you do a really good job of that. And I think you do a good job of creating an atmosphere. And you also, I think you've done a really good job of uh, educating our, our coworkers and our employees on, like, good film, uh, good film etiquette, but also, like you know, what is a good film? Like, I think you've had some really interesting conversations and educated some people with, like, some of the other managers that, like, one of our youngest managers, Megan, she's pretty new to the film world, but she wants to get into animation and stuff, and you're like, yo, you should check this stuff out. Um, and we've, you know, I think it's a really... she He does a really cool uh, stuff, and it was really refreshing for me to meet someone like Nick when I got there um, and experience, like what does it mean to, you know, be a part of this level of the theater business? I mean, we are essentially one of the most important parts because we provide the viewing experience for, you know, the newest Marvel movies and stuff and the newest films. But also we will provide the experience to watch something like an A24 film, like mid-90s or Uncut Gems or something like that. And just, like, watching fans come out, like, having conversations. That's something that you really enjoy and I really enjoy seeing as well. Um... But yeah, uh, let's move on to another question. Oh, here's a good one. What is film to you? <laughs> As he sits there <laughs> with a big old grin on his face. <laughs> oh, it's that damn thousand yard stare. Yeah. That's the. <laughs> I think anybody involved with film is that is one of their most dreaded questions. That yeah. and what's your favorite movie? Yeah, I'm not going to ask that. The two, <laughs> the two most dreaded questions of a film person. Um, I mean, film to me is... It's not everything, but it is everything. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh, film to me is what makes the world seems so vivid mm-hmm. and in color. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Film is the answer to everything, I think. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know of anything that can't be taught with a good film. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. That's great. Um, I think that that's, that's, that's pretty solid. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to say? Or is that... I, I mean, I can't... <laughs> I can't say much about that. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty, it's, that's pretty clear, clear cut. Um, um, it's been a lot to me. Yeah. I mean, it's... The majority of the happy moments in my life, I can look back and see one way or another, they were around something to do with film. Mm-hmm. Whether it's school, work, I mean one of my other big hobbies was riding BMX and there mm-hmm. was even film always involved in that filming yeah. people. I mean, any chance I got when we were filming, it's like any chance I got to get my hands on that camera, mm-hmm. it was there. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So let me ask you the same question. What does it mean? Uh, what, what is a movie theater to you? What does that place mean to you just in general? A theater in general to me, yeah, and I think I probably have a different perspective than most, but there are a lot of theater people out there. Mm-hmm. Um, it just has always felt like home. Mm. The cinema to me is always going to be, I don't want to say second home because it could never be just second for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is my home. Yeah. Just as much as my home is my home. Yeah. But, I mean, I gotta say, a lot of major things have happened to me at the cinema. Like, just the good experiences I've had in life. And nothing beats just sitting and sunk in that chair, watching a late show after I got off work or something. And I know everyone loves these recliner chairs, but I gotta tell you, I miss those shitty little I I kind of miss them too, yeah halfway lean back yeah. and you just sink in them and yeah those were good chairs <laughs> I yeah. kind of miss them so the cinema is always going to be my home yeah and it's always going to be one of my comfort zones nice that's 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 a great answer all right I'm gonna change it up a little bit this this will really get you going <laughs> what are some of the worst films you've ever seen <laughs> And why? <laughs> you know what it was, it was really? I gotta tell you, it was really hard for me when I read that question to just <laughs> even try to think. Of, I don't know if I've just become such a f- optimistic person yeah. on later in life, but I mean, it's hard for me to sit there and think like this is absolutely horrible. Yeah. I mean, some recent, <laughs> I'm just going through some of the recent stuff I've watched. And it can be stuff that you think is so bad it's good, too. Like, the, it can be that stuff. But just, like, I, I've noticed when you and I talk, we usually talk about really bad, bad movies. movies. <laughs> or bad things in movies. Yeah, I mean, I always get the bad horror movies first. Uh-huh. I mean, this new Black Christmas and let me tell you something. I was stoked to see that there was a new Black Christmas. I mean, that was the quintessential slasher film. That's uh-huh. the big argument with slasher is still: did Texas Chainsaw start it, or did Black Christmas start it? Uh-huh. Those are always. I mean, unless you go really deep into the '60s when Hitchcock was still doing Psycho, and Pe- yeah, and then um, I can't remember who did it, but a French film, Peeping Tom, mm-hmm. where. A lot, a few theorists sit there and they say this is these are the first slasher films. Right. These are where these roots came out. But Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw are the ones that a lot of American critics believe are the first slashers. Mm-hmm. And 
I was really excited, and I just thought that this Black Christmas was a absolute shit show. <laughs> Why? Um, the agenda was absolutely not subtle at all. And, I mean, a lot of people will say slasher and that old horror genre mm-hmm. are not friendly to women, but I think a lot of horror is pro-feminist. Mm-hmm. But this one was, look at, this is my agenda. I'm going to force feed you it the mm. whole time. Gotcha. And for me, that's just not what a film is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can be out there, but you have to have some subtlety in the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some other horrible ones? Yeah. I always have trouble thinking of that because... I mean, like, wh- like maybe films that don't even see the silver screen, but, like, usually those are pretty bad. Like, okay, let me ask you about a somewhat recent example. Um, I remember when I asked you about Glass, <laughs> and you're just like, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Glass. That yeah. That was the, uh... That was the, the second in the, or the third in the, uh, the M. Night Shyamalan universe of Unbreakable and Split. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was when they were all together, right? Yeah. Um, Jesus, I can't remember it, but I just remember not liking it. Um, what may, uh, Let me ask you this. What usually makes you not like a film uh, like Black Christmas or Glass or something more, like, less, more forgettable or something like that? So my biggest thing... We'll come to it because of just what I like about film Mm -hmm. and what I like about everything is storytelling. Yeah. If the storytelling, I mean, if the script is weak, I'll know it right away watching a film. Yeah. I mean, I think most people that know anything about film will. I can't do film very well unless they're telling a story. Yeah. I mean, even going down to short films or documentaries even, they're telling you a story. Right. Weak movies like Black Christmas or Glass. There's mm-hmm. holes in the story. Yeah. There's not consistency. There's no subtlety. It's just being vomited out there. Mm-hmm. Um, a good example is The Rise of Skywalker, the mm-hmm. most recent one, that the storytelling basically just felt like a pissing contest between Abrams and Johnson. Yeah. Where Johnson created all these. O- opportunities for the Star Wars universe mm-hmm. and I guarantee you people are already looking back at the last Jedi and thinking it's increased in value a little bit they're thinking I messed up critiquing this in yeah. the beginning and that happens a lot um the first few times I watched Kill Bill I hated it really I hated it I couldn't get through it and now it's one of my favorite Tarantino movies. And why did, why did you not like it at first? I just... The chapter storytelling wasn't mm. my thing at the time. Gotcha. Um, it was really, I think, a, just a lack of submersion into film at the time. Mm. Like, I wasn't... You hadn't as seen experienced a lot you in films when I was seeing Tarantino stuff, and Tarantino is a good writer. Yeah, he's a good storyteller with like just amazing dialogue. Mm-hmm. 
and I just don't think I was ready to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I mean, same thing has happened with other films where I've hated it in the beginning, and you grow and you learn to like it. Or yeah. You, your opinions change. That's yeah. the whole thing about people is they're constantly changing. Mm-hmm. So to sit there and think you're always going to hate a movie or you're always going to love a movie is fruitless. Mm-hmm. Your opinion is always going to change about a film. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my favorite films I'll still watch and they'll make me feel different still. Mm-hmm. Some of them still feel the same, but I notice different things as my viewings increase, as I get older, as I'm at different stages of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 pretty fair. Um, so I, I guess I could jump into the ne- this next question I have. Um, so what does film critiquing mean for you? I think that kind of was a good jumping off point from what you just said. Um, what does it mean to critique a film or, or how do you judge a film based on... You said story is one of the biggest aspects, but what are some other things that you might touch on when you analyze a film or you break down uh, whether you like to film or not nowadays? Okay. Film critiquing, um, mm-hmm. I think, is going to be really different and fluidous for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, critiquing, I think, needs to... For a true critique of a film, you really need to include all aspects of it. Yeah. You can't banish a film and say it was completely horrible because it was a bad script. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the roughest things I think people have is they'll have one bad aspect of a film. And then they'll ruin it. And then they'll let it spread like a virus to every other part of the film. Mm. Um cinematography is something I pay very much attention to. One that cracked me up recently, I started watching that uh, Playing With Fire film, Mm. and I was just blown away that throughout the whole film, Channing Tatum's head is cut off. Like, the top part of his head is cut off. Isn't it John Cena, or is it Channing Tatum? John Cena. Yeah. Yeah, whoever it was. Damn, that was bad. (laughs) Okay. Um, It's probably not that important of a film. (laughs) No, but it would... And then I just thought, is like, how does this get so far away that this many people in this editing and filming process miss this? Yeah. Um, Cinematography, sound composition even, is Mm -hmm. huge to me. One of my perfect examples of anytime somebody asks me, what's a good film with sound composition? What's a good film with sound editing? I always go back recently to the same one, and that's Dunkirk. Really? Yeah. Dunkirk has some of the best examples of manipulating and editing sounds Mm -hmm. I've seen. I mean, the gunfire on the plane cockpit when Hardy's in it yeah. is just jarring. It felt like you were in there and it was just overloading your ears. Huh. Um, but yeah, I mean, storytelling, cinematography, acting. I feel if you're going to critique a film, don't ignore anything. Mm. Now, judgment or theorizing or writing on a film, if you're writing an article about why the cinematography is so amazing in Parasite. Yeah, mm-hmm. focus on the cinematography. Yeah, that makes know? sense. Critiquing will always be a full encapsulation of what it goes into a film, but you can also critique the smaller aspects. 
So if you're going to critique the whole film, you better include everything. Mm-hmm. Because I'm one of those big people who kind of steers clear of the auteur theory. Yeah. While there is the proof of auteurs, you know, you look at Kubrick, you look at Nolan, mm-hmm. Peckinpah, Fincher. You can almost put on any of their films and you can go, this is a Kubrick. Yeah. This is a Fincher. But it's not just them who made that film. Right. I don't know if you've read many scripts, but Zodiac, one of my, definitely yeah. my top Fincher film. Yeah. I don't think Fincher could have ever made that film had that script not been written the way it was. Because mm. that script is almost perfect. Yeah. Um, same thing with The Social Network. Yes. Um, Sorkin's mm-hmm. screenplay, and that is just... It's one of those things that each aspect of it, directing, cinematography, mm-hmm. composition, writing, it's all powerful, but when it's used to support each other mm-hmm. and not fight with each other, it's mm-hmm. even more powerful. Mm. Yeah. That's that's pretty awesome. I think that's really good um, kind of things uh, to examine. Um, yeah, I'm like... What was it? I was recently watching Venom, and I like I can clearly say that's that it, that is a great example of what a film should not do, because there were so many aspects of it that were just jarring for me to watch, and like when I think one of the biggest things that sticks out to me, and one of the things that I focus on a lot is editing, since that's the thing I spend my most time on, is it drives me nuts when I watch a movie that's so poorly edited. And everyone else is like, what's the problem with it? I'm like, you don't get it, do you? I am literally like, I'm like, oh, man, it, it like drives me nuts. And like, uh, what is it? Venom had that. It's like one of the earlier scenes in the film where there's so many cuttings that, you know, disregard one of the most important rules of cinematography and editing. And it's called the 180 degree rule. And that scene that I watched, I turned it off because I was like, this scene is so bad. (laughs) Making you sick to your stomach. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, in basic properties, essentially, the 180-degree rule, if you're going to break it, you're doing it for some sort of shock value. I know Requiem for a Dream does it. I know there's a lot of films that do it very, like, specifically and very clearly. But when you have no motive behind why you're doing it, it's, it's a complete waste, and it's just jarring for people. And you're also disregarding the people that put a lot of time and effort. Because I noticed there were some things in Venom that looked finished. Like, there was one single shot where Venom was up against this, like, neon background, and he looked super good. And I was like, where was this the whole movie? <laughs> like, I'm like, this is the best shot of the whole film right here. And it, it, but like, because the sound design was so horrible and the, uh, the editing was bad and the, just the script was, oh, the script is so bad. <laughs> Have you seen that movie? Yeah. I've oh. watched, I've watched parts of it. I haven't finished the whole thing. The I amount watched, of, the amount of I times they it. say, have a nice life. Once we, what makes you want to like, just punch someone. <laughs> it's so, it's so weird. I'm like. It's just, it's also a bummer because, like, Tom Hardy, Riz Ahmed, like, these actors, they're great actors and actresses in this film. 
and they're just oh, it's just so bad to see their their efforts and talents just squandered on this you know not good movie. And it, even the director's good. The director is Zombieland. Like it's it, it clearly you know. I, I after I watched that film, I looked in IMDb and I was searching. I'm like, who is the person who messed this movie up? I was like, producers. I was like taking down names and stuff. I'm like, all right, this person. Like it's just like never watch a movie from these people again, kind of thing. But just like it, you know, it really is jarring when you can tell when a movie is so bad. And I think one of the more recent examples, I think people are getting smarter about this. And I think one of the most recent examples was Cats, is for multiple reasons. It was just like the things they had the star power. Yes, they had the. I heard that the singing was actually good in the film. But I heard that the VFX. It was two things. One, there were so so much VFX that wasn't ready to be shipped out. They made it under a time budget. And then the other thing was um, the VFX was way too uncanny valley. And if you want to know what I'm talking about like that, there's a video on YouTube by this guy. It's called The Corridor Crew. Watch that video. And it says, why is VFX so bad right now as a whole? And they break down, like, this whole graph of, like, doing animated characters and how it can be effective and how easily it can fall into the uncanny valley. Um, and cats is one of the most major examples of that. Um, (laughs) did you watch it? I gotta tell you with venom and cats, I think, and this will get to more of a kind of industry side. Yeah. I think studio involvement is getting to be just a little too much in film Mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. Um, that's why, I mean, I think we've seen the sharp uptick of this love for independent films. I mean, dude, A24 is an industry, you know, a film company that started with two dudes in their thirties in New York. Yeah. I mean, it's guys my age that are producing some of the greatest films coming out right now. Mm -hmm. And they're holding on to that indie structure. Yeah. And yeah, sometimes the distribution's difficult, like with Uncut Gems. Yeah. I think Uncut Gems, not only this year, was really snubbed at the Academies. Not that I'm surprised, because yeah. the Academy hates the Safdie brothers, yeah. I think. Yeah. But uh, they created a script that gave Adam Sandler his best role. I mean, this yeah. is his magnum opus. Yeah. And I love his comment after being snubbed at the Academy that he was basically like, I am going to go out of my way to make the worst film ever. Yeah. Now. And I think that's a total amazing view to a society that is still hardly just vastly subjective Mm -hmm. with their nominations. Yeah. I mean, I can't... I have little trust for the Academy. Mm -hmm. and. When it comes down to it, it's kind of scary, but a lot of the industry with film has to do with just the bottom line, and that's the dollar. Yeah. Um, You know, the same reason that Venom might have been pushed out early or cut short, you know, a lot of it has to do with time constraints. I mean, look at the arduous journey that the Irishman went on to get produced. Yeah. I mean, this is Scorsese, De Niro, Pacino, Pesci. These are 
dudes. Heavy these hitters. are all heavy hitters, yeah. and not a single goddamn studio would produce him. Yeah. And Scorsese had to go with his tail between his legs to a company that one he already talks shit about. Yeah. And then produce <laughs> a film that's getting nominated for Oscars when it is. I think the same film he's been making since he started making films. Yeah. I mean, Scorsese is not... I wouldn't be surprised if he's had the Irishman script, like, ready for years now. And he oh, just, like, he has. And he just acted like he, he did it. He's had that thing written for yeah. years. And yeah. Scorsese, in no way, is a bad filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You can't sit there and say he's a bad filmmaker. Yeah. But he has a formula, and he sticks to it. Yeah. And that's an auteur... And auteurs, I mean, by and by, don't take risks. Yeah. They're not risk takers. Even if you can sit here and be like, oh, Kubrick was such a visionary. Mm -hmm. He was so amazing. But guess what? He got one successful thing, and he didn't stray stray from his formula. Yeah. That was the most horrible thing about Kubrick is he was a genius. Mm Mm-hmm. But Jesus Christ, he made the same movie over and over and over again. Yeah. And, and I think we're starting to realize that with, with uh, bigger studios, too. Like, I think Disney is, like, they're putting everything under Marvel's shadow right now because, one, Star Wars isn't super hot anymore, and Marvel is literally the most money-making. It's the, the ba- it's their bank, essentially. Yeah. Like, that's that's why they're investing so much money into, like, creating all these side properties and all this stuff for it. But, like, you know, (laughs) I just saw this video today that someone took the clip from Force Awakens where Rey is force-grabbing the lightsaber and it comes to her, and they match it up with the audio from Captain America grabbing Thor's hammer from Endgame. (laughs) And you're just like, oh, no. Disney's been doing the same thing for years, and it's been all under our nose. <laughs> I mean, that's the scary thing to think about it, though, is everybody's been doing the same thing for years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I sit here and I talk about original ideas and independent films, but it's scary to think about, but there really aren't original stories out there. Yeah. I mean... Until I- A24 came along. <laughs> And I mean, is A24 original or are they just putting different skins on something? Because you got to sit there and you think one of the greatest conversations I have with people is how much they love the Big Lebowski, how original it is, how there's never been a single thing like it. It's It's a neo-noir film. No, it's Homer's Odyssey. Oh. It's goddamn Homer's Odyssey, the thing that's been told forever. Yeah. I mean, just because the rug isn't the holy grail doesn't mean he still isn't on his quest. (laughs) I mean, the dude is the anti-hero. I mean, he's there on his quest for his rug, man. But it's still... There's a lot of stories that are just based off the stories we've been telling for generations, and that's because storytelling is innately human. Yeah. And storytelling isn't for pure entertainment. I mean, we're telling the stories of our ancestors, of Mm -hmm. fears in our lives. And that's why one of the big things I hit on with horror and my thesis is we are sitting here and telling the stories that our generation is going through. Mm -hmm. 
these stories are just not just made up screenplays. I mean, look at Hereditary. Yes. This whole story of this intergenerational trauma and these parents and their psychological illnesses just fucking their kids up. Yeah. This is shit that is going on right now. Yeah. This is, you know, these toxic relationships and these abusive partners Mm -hmm. that are brought up in midsummer. Yeah. This is shit going on right now. Right. Yeah, and you you bring a really good point there. Um, yeah, I, I you know it's interesting. Like everyone's like, oh, Hereditary is Rosemary's Baby and all that stuff, and like, and Joker is Taxi Driver and King of Comedy. But like, there is a lot of like, I, I think what originality means now is how nuanced can you get without making it too weird for audiences. You know, and I think, like, our directors like Ari Aster are doing that really well. Like, we've been talking a lot about Hereditary and Midsummer, but also, uh, I, I see a lot of, and, and don't, don't take this the wrong way, because I know you have some issues with Kubrick, but I see Lighthouse almost as this interesting, like, spiritual sequel to The Shining, more or less, of, like, like, it, it has this, like, perfect Descent to Madness film, and it's also disguised as this, like, psychological horror film as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's not saying that just because we see roots of others in it that they're just ripping them off. Yeah. We can't deny that people are influenced by others, and influence should never be a negative thing to talk about. Yeah. Just because your art is influenced by another artist Mm -hmm. does not take away from what you're doing. Right. So, yeah, you know, if stuff is influenced by Kubrick, there's no bad in it. Yeah. Yeah, The Joker does have those inner workings of Taxi Driver and King of Comedy. But instead of sitting there and being like, well, Todd Phillips is an original. He just stole the ideas. Yeah. Why is this conversation that happened in the 70s yeah. films still coming back yeah. up right now? Yeah. Why are we still telling of a descent into madness that Kubrick told in The Shining? Mm-hmm. Why is that happening now? And that's not just happening with, you know, The Lighthouse. We see the witch mm-hmm. in that descent. I mean, the neon de- demon Oof. is just a descent. I'm surprised we haven't even talked about that film yet. <laughs> just that descent into madness yeah. that's brought on by the L.A. industry, the yeah. model industry and all that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the biggest thing to talk about, I think, is not why these films in this decade are looking like films from the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. But why, why are we are dealing we, with the same problems? Why are we bringing up the same themes that we yeah. dealt with in one of the worst eras of our yeah. country? Yeah. I mean, the 70s in America were horrible. It was the decade of cynicism. Mm-hmm. The free love era of the 60s was dead, and we brought forth Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, Straw Dogs, all these mm-hmm. violent films. The birth of the slasher genre that just... Brit, like just was breathing carnage and consumerism. Mm-hmm. The same themes in the 70s are coming back up in this decade. And it's in no way a ripoff of those other filmmakers. Yeah. It's these new filmmakers realizing this is kind of the same shit we're dealing with. Yeah. I mean, we're not in Vietnam right now, but we're in, 
Iraq and Iran and amazingly more countries that we definitely don't even know about. Yeah. Nothing, you know, all this cynicism is coming back up in this generation. We have the generations against each other, Mm -hmm. millennials and boomers, filled with cynicism for each other's generations. Yeah, and you can see that in films like, uh, they, what, why am I forgetting the name? Tommy Lee Jones, I, I just talked to you about this film a while ago. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, uh, Josh Brolin, no Western. Country full yes, old that. Man. Why was I forgetting that name? Uh, I was like, it is on the tip of my tongue. No are country. We, are we gonna get into neo noir western? I mean, we may as well. <laughs> I, we're, I mean, we were we were going a little fast there, but now now we're now we're hitting a steady stream. Um, but yeah, I you know it's it's interesting, and I I think your argument of that film is like that is the gap of generations. Like Tommy Lee Jones's character is like exactly what boomers are right now. Like they don't understand how the hell this is happening, you know? But I'm sure, you know, if you were to go back when the boomers were born and, like, their parents would be asking the same questions and stuff like that, and, you know... Oh, man, so many conversations you could spin off into. But that's what I'm saying, is that the whole idea of originality is a little harder to come off with, but Mm -hmm. we're still... I mean, what are we doing? We're still storytelling. Yeah. And that's the way that filmmakers and artists are doing it is they're finding different ways to tell the same stories. Yeah. Because we need to convey these problems that we've already dealt with to the generations. Yeah. And, and one of my favorite film topics that I see commonly uh, in... One of my favorite film topics that I see in films, especially sci-fi films, and you know that I love sci-fi films right now, is... The, one of the newer concepts that's slowly being introduced in the film has actually been around since the birth of film, and that is artificial intelligence. Um, and I like, actually was uh, I was watching Ex Machina. This yeah, morning. yeah. And I gotta say too, like you into the sci-fi and yeah. how I mentioned earlier about how I've had a lot of influence from others around me. Yeah. I've never been a huge fan of sci-fi. Yeah. And I've never been one of those people that hates it, because I won't... Yeah. I won't hate a genre. I just... I can't, because yeah. I think there's merit in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gotten a lot more into sci-fi recently, and I think that's because I've talked to you about it and been given that opportunity to kind of dig into it. I yeah. mean, I revisited, I think... Like, right after you left for school, I revisited Tron Legacy. Yeah. (laughs) And... Best movie. The last time I saw that, I built Tron Legacy at the theater on 35mm, and I screened it by myself that night. And I remember loving it. I remember watching it and just being completely entranced. The the imagery, the sound, and I mean, god damn, that soundtrack in Daft Punk. <laughs> it's but so good. I rewatched it the other day, and I was just like, why have I not watched this? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, I've been doing, like, I mean, they're the same filmmaker, but Garland has been really impressing me with Ex Machina and yes. Annihilation. Yeah. Annihilation was amazing. I need to go back and rewatch Annihilation. I remember I had a little trouble with it from the first watch, not because of anything it did bad, but of one thing that it um if you've seen Annihilation, it's a from 2018, so I guess it's been out for a while now, but the yeah. um there's a scene where there's this alien bear thing 
I guess you'd call it. And it Which, has it has the power to like disguise its its cry as a human voice that you you know. And that is that is one of the things that has been one of my like early childhood nightmares since I was super young. So seeing that, I wanted to leave the theater immediately <laughs> because all of those fears were that were so repressed came back up, and I was like, I can't handle this right now. Oh, I can't handle childhood trauma in this film. <laughs> but I need to revisit it because it was so good. Like, I remember the visuals being really interesting and stuff, and um, just, like, the super interesting VFX with, like, all the plant life and stuff and the mutation stuff that they did. That was super fascinating. Um, but, yeah, like, artificial intelligence, like what I was going back to earlier with, like, Artificial intelligence, for example, is a new concept that people think about, but really, it's been around since Metropolis. Yeah. Yeah, that was the first film ever when to cover it. When was Metropolis? The 20s? Yeah, it was before the, it was before the Nazi movement. Yeah. <laughs> it inspired the Nazi movement. More or less. <laughs> yeah. um, one thing I wanted to mention, you were talking about the bear for Annihilation. Yeah. There's an old horror movie from the 70s, 79, called Prophecy. And I shit you not, I don't know if it's for sure, but I think Garland got his inspiration from the bear. Really? From that bear in that movie. Oh, man. So. I I don't know if I want to watch it now. It's it's a pretty bad old horror movie, but the bear in it is just brutal. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, man, I've, I've never had something as an adult, like, shake fear into me so much than that scene. That scene. <laughs> I was so terrified. And I, my girlfriend at the time, I'm like, I want to leave. I just want to leave. And she's like, just stick it out. I'm sure it'll get resolved. And I just, she was right. I stuck it out. But like, that was so, the, the, the five minutes that that thing was on screen, I just, traumatizing. I was traumatized <laughs> that whole time. Um, okay. So I know you hate this question, but uh, let me ask you, what are some of your Favorite filmmakers, and this can be actors, directors, cinematographers. Um, I know you talked about Fincher a lot, but like, go into the some of those people. Like, I know you have a lot of actors that you'll basically watch any of their work because you just love them so much. But I want to I want to hear from you and on on the show exactly like who are some of your film ma- favorite filmmakers, and it could be anyone in any category. Yeah, this is gonna go off the rails yeah. and be very diverse. Yeah. But- I mean, maybe we'll just go through it by types first. I mean, yeah. directors, I gotta say Fincher. Mm-hmm. I mean, his his mood in his films, uh, Zodiac, Gone Girl, I mean, they're just these dark, precise neo-noir. Even his old one, The Game, which mm-hmm. I think a lot of people miss, is just amazing. It's these thriller films that you kind of just don't even know what's going on. I mean, even with Zodiac, you know the story, but you're still sitting there like, what's going to happen next? And I do have to give hats off to him because he ended a movie that has no ending. Yeah. And that's a pretty difficult thing to do. Yeah. Um, Older director-wise, I mean, Oliver Stone's been one of my favorites. I like a lot of his stuff. Natural Born Killers, Born on the Fourth of July. That's a good film. JFK. Mm-hmm. Um, who else directing wise? Some newer. I've been into a lot of newer age ones recently. Mm-hmm. Um, Nicholas Winding Refn. Yes. Uh, Neon Demon Drive. 
Only God Forgives. Um, what was the TV series? Is he it just Too Old did? to Die Young? Too Old to Die Young. Uh, Refn, I think, is one of my favorite directors working at the time. Um, and then I talked about Ari Aster, Garland. These are <laughs> awesome people making moves. Another one that a lot of people miss out just because I think he's Australian is Xavier Dolan. He did Good Night, Mommy, which is mm. a good horror film. Um, and then some amazing other filmmakers, Jennifer Kent and the Babadook. Mm. I think the gold, it was the Goldfinch she did, I think, mm-hmm. um, that didn't really land. And I don't know why. I thought it was pretty amazing. Oh, it was good. I didn't, I yeah. didn't see it yet. Um, who did Revenge? Uh, oh, yeah, that was... That kind of came out Revenge of nowhere. Revenge was amazing, and then Raw, the Julia Ducarano or something. Um, I think you'll notice I have a penchant for French film and French filmmakers. Yes. Uh, streaming back t- all the way to Godard, I think, was one of my really loves of film. Oh, Coralie, that's what it was for Revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, Revenge was a... A unique one. Um, yeah. It's hard to... I think it's really hard to do the rape-revenge film anymore. Because yeah, it's people such are so a, sensitive on it. I think it's hard to make it their own, mm-hmm. actually, because it's... I mean, Wes Craven kind of overdid it in the beginning with The Last House on the Left. And, you know, there's Deliverance which is the ultimate threat to masculinity of the male-on-male rape. Yeah. And just a lot of people could not swallow that one just because it puts masculinity in a fragile state, and I think that's hard for a lot of people to deal with. Right. But the rape revenge is always one that's been interested in me, but I just... It's one of those hard ones that you can never recommend to people because it yeah. is a hard film to watch. Yeah, and I, I think those kind of fall under like the one-time watch film category where it's important to you know know of its impact and experience it, but like you don't have to rewatch it or anything unless you're unless you're studying it, of course. But like, no. yeah, um, a lot of lot of uh, what other films, what other directors do? So Gaspar Noé does that a little bit too. Noé, I like a lot. Von mm-hmm. Trier, I'm always gonna love for his. Uh, a lot of people love Von Trier for his shock factor. Mm-hmm. My love is that every film, he does something uniquely technical he's never done before. Yeah, I mean, one of the the train scene in Dancer in the Dark had a hundred cameras. How do you operate and film a scene with a hundred cameras? <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Von Trier goes. Not only are his films a shock factor, if you ever look at the technical aspects of each one, they're amazingly difficult films yeah. to make. Um, he's not a cookie-cutter filmmaker at all. No. Going back in time, um, the, the famous people, Sergio Leone with his spaghetti westerns, mm-hmm. I grew up watching The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Fistful of Dollars, Hang Em High, um, all those westerns, Once Upon a Time in West. Yeah. Um, Godard for his French film. And I wanted to bring it up earlier, but Godard and his famous film Breathless, which really put him in the race to be one of the big French New Wave directors, yeah. was an answer to what you were saying 
cutting technical aspects of film in an anti-establishment way. Yeah. He disregarded the 180 degree rule. He disregarded the continuity rule. Right. Um, he did this not only as a unique style, but in a time in filmmaking where taking risk was not very rewarded mm. and starting French new wave. And I think new wave movements are huge in film and, there's not only been French, but the Brazilian New Wave, Japanese yeah. New Wave. You know, those directors that go back there are the ones I really look at and their process of taking the rules and kind of breaking away from them. Yeah. What um, You also, you haven't mentioned him yet, but uh, I, w- I was going to ask you, 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 you've talked to me a lot about uh, PTA um, and his films. Specifically, I mean, There Will Be Blood is the one we've talked about the most, but... Yeah. Do, I think, do you want to mention Th- Paul Thomas Anderson a little bit? I mean, I think There Will Be Blood is one of those films that... Gets better with time. If I can say I had a favorite film, I think it would be that one. Yeah. Um, everything about that film is just the hopelessness and the despair and the long, open shots of the open west. Mm-hmm. Um Paul Thomas Anderson, I think, is a very unique filmmaker. He is definitely an auteur, but yeah. his films, I believe, are really American, though. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, There Will Be Blood is a lot of cynicism about corporate America and yeah. corporate greed. It's At the time it came out, it was really, really... Ahead of its time. Yeah. For the conversation it was ha- having. Yeah, and I think a lot of people disregard Paul Thomas Anderson. I don't think he's seen with very much credibility outside mm-hmm. of film circles. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like, I, I recently watched There Will Be Blood this year, and I, I was just shocked on, like... I'm like, this came out ten years ago? Like, this seems like the type of thing that would come out now, you know? Yeah. Um, which is incredible, but yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that. So let me ask you about, you, you talked a lot about directors. Who are some cinematographers or actors or writers that you really like? Writers. I mean, Sorkin, yeah. obviously, even though he hasn't had a ton of a mate, like big stuff. Um, social network is yeah. one of those ones that I'm just like, is written amazingly. Yeah. Um, his HBO series he did, too, The Network, mm-hmm. was written very well. Um, I enjoyed that a lot. Writers. Um, honestly, right now I've been really into Robert Eggers, mm. um, the director-writer of The Witch and the Lighthouse. His uh, his scripts are very meticulous. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't understand how he gets that going. I mean, the dialogue from the witch and even recently watching the dialogue from the lighthouse is if the dialogue that wasn't in those films, you would never feel that you were in the period of those films. Um, Jeremy Saunier is another one that I've been really enjoying the writing of lately. He did blue ruin, which Mm -hmm. was kind of his breakout and then green room, Room, which I know is one, um, Green Room was ahead of its time. Mm. I think if Green Room had come out a year later, a lot of more people would have seen it. It's mm. about, uh, you know, a lot of neo-Nazism and stuff, mm. which I think was a perfect conversation starter for the last few years of this mm-hmm. country. 
Um, cinematographers, I don't know a ton of names by hand. Um, one of the favorite ones, and this is from my old roots in Japanese cinema from the classes I had, is uh, Ozu. Mm. He was a really good one. Um, what films did he work... Who did he work with? Did he... Ozu did everything. He was writer, director, cinematographer. Okay. It was... Yeah, he was an auteur for sure. Gotcha. Um, I think he did... What's it called? Lady in the Sand, which is a really mysterious, kind of confusing film, but... As it goes, it just gets really good. Mm. Um, Deacons. Yeah. Obviously. Um, yeah, but I don't know a ton of cinematographers. What about actors? Actors. Um, <laughs> I'm just I'm just waiting for you to talk about Jakey. <laughs> oh, I'm trying to egg you on here. Jakey, okay. <laughs> no, Gyllenhaal is someone that I've always yeah. just really enjoyed. I mean, mm-hmm. he's a... He's a diverse actor. Yeah. I mean, he does a lot of different stuff. Um, all the way from Zodiac to Velvet Buzzsaw yeah. to... I mean, Jesus. He even tops the cake now with being in a Marvel movie. Yeah. Which I think he was an awesome Mysterio. Yeah. He was um, perfect for that role. <laughs> but he's just someone that I've seen in diverse roles that I've always just really enjoyed his acting. Mm-hmm. I mean... End of Watch, Enemy, Prisoners, all of it. Um, yeah, but... And Zodiac. <laughs> and Zodiac, yeah, one of my favorite ones. I mean, dude, him and Zodiac with Downey Jr. and Ruffalo, I yeah, think it's basically... The, it's, it's the Marvel trio right yeah, there. Before, right there. It was right the same year that Iron Man came out. Yeah, so it was like hyping up right there to get them all going. Yeah. Um, That's super funny. Yeah kind of on the spot with actors and actresses i just i can't think of a ton mm-hmm. um nicole kidman and Charlize theron are ones recently that i've been really enjoying their work I yeah mean, uh kidman i think just did destroyer mm-hmm. and she was absolutely unidentifiable in it she looked amazing i heard about that movie i haven't watched it yet it's really good um and then i recently rewatched eyes wide shut with nicole kidman mm-hmm. and then bombshell this year was good with nicole kidman and Charlize theron and then mm-hmm. Charlize theron years ago had that role monster where she mm-hmm. played the serial killer yeah and she was just amazing in that yeah and then the good one to look out for that i think is going to do awesome is margot robbie yeah um, I think she should be on a lot of people's radar. Yeah. I think she got a lot of bad publicity with Once Upon a Time. Hmm. With just her lack of dialogue. Yeah. But her character was more of like a symbolic timepiece than anything. It was. Yeah. But I think a lot of people just... Misinterpreted that. I think a lot of people just have a problem with Tarantino and yeah. just go off that he's misogynistic. Yeah. So they just assume if a girl, you know, a female doesn't have lines, that's because... He doesn't want her to. Yeah. But really, did Margot Robbie need that many lines to play as Sharon Tate? No. No, because other than Brad Pitt, I think she outshined every single person in that film. Yeah. That's another person. Anything Brad Pitt will watch. Really? Yeah. I've, I've never asked you about <laughs> it's, that. I know it's bad, but yeah. There's right. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Um, okay, I have one last question for you before we get into the wrap-up questions, and that is, uh, what is the coolest aspect of film for you? 
And that can be cinematography, that can be writing, that can be, you know, whatever. What, what is the thing that you, like, you, it's the thing that you're always, like, looking for in a film or something like that? Or the one aspect you gravitate to the most? I mean, I honestly don't know if I can say one aspect. There's, there's something I've always had about films that I can tell if I'm really into them or not is that uh, when you watch them, I have something where I'll lean back and watch it, but as soon as I lean forward and I have my elbows yeah. on my knees, <laughs> I've seen you do that that's when I know a movie is where it's at. And there's been a few movies where I've, you know, put them on as just to put them on. Mm -hmm. And next thing I know, three hours later, this happened with, uh, blue is the warmest color. Mm -hmm. One of this decade's Palm de Or winners. Yeah. Um, that movie's three hours yeah. and I put it on as just some background. And next thing I know, the credits are rolling and I'm, my back is on fire. <laughs> my neck hurts. <laughs> Um, just because of how entranced I was it in it. And I don't think you can get that entrancement unless everything works in unison. Yeah. Just the way most things cannot work if every aspect is not working together. Like a theater cannot run properly unless everything is working efficiently. Yeah. Another one that did that is this year's Parasite. Yeah. Dude, both, that film. Both times I watched Parasite was at the Alamo in San Francisco. Uh -huh. And it was both later showings. Mm -hmm. Both nights driving home from San Francisco, I thought my eyes were bleeding. Because... <laughs> And then the person I went with actually said this too. They were like, as soon as that opening credit hit on Parasite, your eyes are open and I don't see you blink. <laughs> so, and to give a reasoning of why that happens is because when you watch Parasite or films like that, mm -hmm. the dialogue, the acting, the writing, the cinematography, the composition, the sound editing, all of that flows together mm -hmm. you can't i feel if one little thing was out of whack the film would not be as powerful mm. gotcha all right so let me get to the last few questions so what is something that you personally are proud of and this doesn't have to be film related this can be anything um but i like to ask this question to my interview yes because i think it's an interesting one Something that you personally are proud of. Something you've been a part of, you've worked on, something you spent a lot of time on, that sort of thing. I mean, two big things I can think of that I'm proud of. One is just going through and getting my master's and mm -hmm. being like the first college graduate in my family. Or, you know, in my immediate family. Um, I was also the first person at Sonoma State to graduate with a master's in film. Mm. So even my cohort who started at the same time as me, I graduated first. Mm. Yes. Um, and then the other thing I'm proud of is while nothing really came, I mean, I don't want to say nothing came of my bachelor's in psychology because honestly, I think it's helped me analyze films a lot. Yeah. I think with that background, it'll just help you analyze anything with that aspect. But uh, for the two years I did it, I worked with 
a bunch of kids who had PTSD. Mm. And honestly, it wasn't much. It was just a little volunteer thing I did with uh, group work once a week with the kids. But just doing that is one of the things I'm actually proud of, like giving back to the community I came from. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that, I guess. Yeah. That's a, that's a great answer. Um, my second to last question is, uh, what is what are some things that make you joyful? Uh, watching movies. <laughs> I mean, shit. I <laughs> shit. I mean, let's just be real. The first thing I should say is watching movies because yeah. that's what does make me happy. Yeah. Um, the stuff that makes me joyful, as I've gotten older, I've just become one of those people that likes to take it all in. I mean, mm-hmm. shit, I get just as much fun going to like three day music festivals as I do reading a good book. Yeah. I mean, this summer I got, you know, bottle rock lined up and yeah. I'm ex- you know, stuff like that brings me joy. I have the prospect of going out and traveling now that I'm done with school and yeah. all that. Um, I try to just bring the joy out of anything I do. Yeah. I mean, even being at work, there are days where I'm excited to go to work. Yeah. And there are definitely never days that I dread going to work. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, joy, the the little stuff is really what's big for me. Spending time with the people I care about. Yeah. Watching movies, good books, yeah. anything that I just bringing good art in and just yeah. consuming art no matter what the art is from a video game with a good story to a good book to films to going and enjoying music whether yeah. it's live or not i mean just even going and <laughs> sitting at the bar with my friends talking is one of those things that brings me joy mm-hmm. nice and my last question for you is where can we find, follow, and support you um, in your work, whether it be through the movie theater or your uh, film writing and stuff like that? I mean, the writing, I'm trying to get a leg up on anything right mm-hmm. now and working on getting a blog going or something like that because mm-hmm. I do need to... I am in that little, like you said, valley after my master's where yeah. I've kind of just been kind of trying to figure out what to do but i mean i'm on letterboxd Mm -hmm. and twitter and all like the social medias for what is my letterboxd i think it's pretty much all of them are uncle peanut (laughs) underscore (laughs) i'll include it i'll include your letterbox in the description (laughs) yeah include it in the description yeah yeah that's the same thing for instagram and stuff and letterboxd i'm getting better at Mm -hmm. putting my stuff on there reviewing films recording everything and then yeah i mean i'm trying to find a good outlet to put my writing on right now and figuring out where i'm gonna go obviously come and support the theater airport yeah um we like to get as yeah santa rosa cinemas airport bring you know just come and see our movies because i love people coming there and if you see me talk to me because i love talking to customers about films yeah I wish more people did it. Yeah. But. <clears throat> nice. Well, thanks for having uh, coming on the show. And it's been a long time coming, but uh, 
I really appreciate having you having us having a recorded conversation, which we do, we haven't had before. We've had very lengthy conversations in the past, but this is this was quite a treat. Um, and uh, is there any last few things you want to say to the audience at all? I mean, just thank you for having me on this. It's fun to just get out there and discuss films mm-hmm. with people. And yeah. Like you said, we talk about this shit every day. Yeah. Every day we work together, you know, we talk about it. And that's just the best thing about anything with film is being able to discuss it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. If you see me at the theater, talk to me. Just yep. talk to me about movies. Because yeah. that's all I love talking about. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's friendly. He doesn't bite too much. What? <laughs> No. All right, and you can get me down a rabbit hole every now and then. Oh man, and some real, <laughs> it's, it's so easy. Some real obscure film references. <laughs> and if you want customized lists of movies to watch, I'll oh yeah, he's too. he's great at recommending. Stuff. I do what everybody at work now. I do. They're like recommend me some movies, so I just give them a post-it note with five films on it that I think they'll like. <laughs> and just yeah, if you ever need those five films, yeah, hit me up. yeah. All right, well, thanks uh, thanks for coming on, Nick, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Two Cast. If you would like to support the show, like Donkey D. Dillon, Charlene Lombardi, Peter McCormick, Paul McCormick, and Kirsten Carpenter, head on over to patreon.com slash There you'll find perks like new merchandise coming out very soon. And head on over to Twitch this weekend, where I will be streaming Pokemon Mystery Dungeon DX all weekend long. Anyways, have a good day.